Hello, good evening. How are you? That's about the sediment I feel out there on Facebook these days. <laughs> if we haven't met, my name is Mark, one of the uh, pastors here, one of the assistant pastors um, on Sunday nights, co-teach with Zach. And we've been trekking through the book of Hebrews. So if you've got your Bible, and you should, open up to Hebrews chapter 11. Some of you have heard this a lot. You know what this chapter is called. They call it the Hall of Faith. Um, you may be excited to know that it's, this will probably be the least Hall of Faith type sermon um, on this chapter. So um, if you've heard the Hall of Faith, you're like, oh, I've got to go through these guys. I, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to do it in a normal way because I just didn't feel impressed through my study to impressed upon me to kind of just go through and to be honest you can take a look at each one of these characters and just do an in-depth study like each almost every paragraph deserves its own sermon so i'm just going to kind of try to take a look at um basically the first half of it we're going to go up through chapter uh, verse 16 but just kind of take a look at kind of the sweep of that the first half of the book so if you're there hebrews 11 let me get my notes up here one of these days, like my iPad's going to fail or something like that. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to have no notes and we're just going to wing it, but not tonight. It actually worked. I'm waiting. It's going to happen at some point. So, because I don't, I don't write them out. I only keep them digitally. So, all right, I'm going to pray. And that, man, it smells. You can smell that stain up here. If I start to get buzzed like halfway through, it's not my fault. Okay. Cause it's like, I'm like huffing paint up here. It's terrible. So, all right, let's pray. God, just, um, just excited to learn uh, myself as as I've been mulling through these notes and and getting through the study this week and not really I mean honestly as you know as as the congregation now knows not not really feeling um, as fluid as I normally do in the preparation but I think that's just I think it's forcing me to just sting to stay closer to the text and just to let your word speak um, and so I just pray that tonight would be sweet that it'd be encouraging for those that are here, um, myself included, that we would be um, built back up as we take a look at a huge, um, arguably a huge chapter, a huge concept, um, this idea of faith. Um, and it's, it's something that we talk about a lot, um, and it seems like it's overdone, but we can't overdo it, as the passage is going to tell us. Without it, it's impossible to please you. And so I pray that all of us as children would, would come here wanting to know more about what pleases you, that we would not set our eyes on ourselves, that we would actually care what pleases you. Um, and so often we just think about what displeases you, and, and this idea of, of faith is, is the thing that is the key to please you. And so um, just set our hearts right, mine included, certainly mine first and foremost. Um, Holy Spirit, just ask that uh, that you would just push me out of the way, that you would have your way with the text, that you'd have your way with this message, that you'd have your way with our hearts, that you would score us, you would open us up, you'd pour into us, um, that we wouldn't see any man lifted up as Dane said, but that we would see Jesus, that we'd see you more highly and lifted up. So we love you, we praise you, and particularly in this message, um, can't wait to see you again. And I, I don't want to lose sight of that, that, that the gospel is complete, but it's not over. And so would you just excite us, encourage us, build us up, um, set us on mission for your gospel in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hebrews 11, this is that chapter, this is that hall of faith chapter where you, you, you look to when you're taking a look at a New Testament example 
of Old Testament examples who are the bulwarks in the faith. And, and this goes right back to the beginning of time and, and this understanding of faith. But, but I, I honestly, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you. I mean, um, I didn't know how, I, a lot of times I'm like really excited to like kick off and end sermons. Like it's, and, and then the meat, I love teaching through it. But like part of me, like part of my personality is loving the open, the close. And I just, I didn't, I confessed it with our, you know, prayer group before. I didn't know how to kick it off. I, I didn't know how to start. Not that I was trying to overdo it, like come up with some trick or anything like that. Um, but I, I was just struggling. I mean, I, I know the text. I did the text. Um, and I've just been all, all week, certainly this weekend, um, had a busy weekend. So I was just kind of trying to put some thought behind it as well. Um, and just kind of just in the last you know few minutes before I got here, one of the things that um, I think might help is that if you have a pen, um, or if you've got your phone, if you can write this down, because this is, this is just me and I'm imposing this on you. I do this at work. Like if I want to get stuff done, I just, I, I kid you not, like I'm a digital marketer and I use Post-its. Like Post-its are my life. One, because they annoy the living daylights out of me. So if I put a task on there, it annoys me and I want to get it done so I don't have a Post-it on my monitor anymore. But like writing it down is big for me, okay? So like seeing something, putting pen to paper, for me, makes it so much more tangible. And so what I'm going to ask you to do tonight as we open up this chapter, as we take a look at this concept of faith, is I want you to write down in your Bible or put in your phone, um, I want you to be real. I want you to be introspective with yourself. I want you to write down the, one, the, the, great, the biggest thing that you're struggling with right now in your faith. You don't have to come up with a list, the one big thing. Like when I said that, something probably already popped into your head. Oh, it's that. And look, if you're struggling to figure that out, amazing, terrific. But come up with something where you're struggling to trust that God can do what God says he can do in your life. So we're just going to take like a super awkward 60 seconds and just go silent while you write that down. still writing keep writing but if you're done just look up at me awkwardly I'm a big fan of awkward if you didn't know that huge fan of awkward take your time keep writing keep writing I see people writing so keep writing <coughs>
Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If you want to, underline substance, underline evidence. Those words have been running through my head all week as I've been preparing and praying over this and keep coming back to this substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Merriam-Webster Dictionary, which I appreciate at times, I also think is kind of funny at times, defines substance as this, a particular kind of matter, a particular kind of matter with uniform properties. A substance is a particular kind of matter with uniform properties. And I'll assume that definition is, it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And just as your eyes give you the evidence of things in the physical realm, don't they? Your eyes are the way by which you process the things that you encounter in the physical realm. This concept of faith is the way by which you process things that are beyond this realm. It is the way by which you process the evidence of the things that are beyond this realm. There is a physical realm and there is a spiritual realm. It says, in the beginning, God made the heavens, that is the spiritual realm, and the earth, that is the physical realm. And in a physical sense, we use eyes, we use smell, we use our senses to perceive, to process things in a physical realm. And it's interesting that he used the word substance. We'll talk about that more in a second. But this idea is that faith is the way by which you perceive that you process the things that are in a spiritual realm. It doesn't mean that you discard reason. It doesn't mean I'm not going to talk about blind faith. I'm not. I want that for none of you. I want none of you to be in faith because Pastor Mark said be in faith. The Bible doesn't demand it. It never asks you to leave your reason, your intellect at the door. But know that just as we see things in the physical realm and process them, that our faith is the way by which we testify and process the things in the spiritual realm. And it says substance, which to be honest has a physical property. You heard the definition, a particular kind of matter. And the irony in using, not really the irony, the beauty in using that word is that your faith is now the tangible expression of the intangible. Your faith, your call as a Christian, as a child of God, as someone who is a part of the people of God, is to live in a physical expression that is the substance of something you understand beyond the physical realm. This isn't morality. I'm sick of morality. I'm sick of religiosity. I'm sick of behavior modification in the church. Jesus was sick of it. Couldn't care less about it. That's why he was always fighting with the Pharisees. He didn't fight with the homeless. He didn't fight with the outcast, the impoverished, the stricken, the kicked out. Who did he fight with? The religious folks that wanted to control people's behavior, make them good. Jesus came and said, I'm good. We're not. That's where the gospel begins. 
I'm sick of morality. I'm sick of religiosity. I'm sick of I go to church so I'm fine. I'm sick of I've always gone, therefore I'm a Christian. I'm tired of it. But here's the beautiful thing. The call on God's people is that we live in a way that reflects something that we see beyond this life. You've got to reverse engineer that. You need to understand that if heaven is your destination and you're in a faith that truly you believe that. I'm not saying intellectually. I'm not saying intellectually. I'm saying you get, there's a lot of people that believe in heaven that aren't going. Jesus himself said, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He goes, not everyone that says there's a Christian is a Christian. That's what he said. I'm not talking about believing that there is a heaven. I'm talking about believing that you're going. You reverse engineer that, your life, with that on your heart, your life begins to look different. Not because you have to, because you want to. Because if you're going there and friends aren't, you want them to see what that is about now. And so you reverse engineer it with that in your heart, with eternity in your heart, truly in your heart, genuinely in your heart, your life, I believe. That's why, Zach, and I don't have to tell you how to act. We'll preach you the gospel. We'll tell you where you're going and who's there waiting for you and what he's done to make sure that you get there. And we know that behavior will follow. Because when you're pursuing him, things will change. And when you know, not, not that you know heaven exists, you've even gotten over that intellectually, which is a, ba- a, a brain bender, let's be honest. There's the realm and there's the heaven. And we're going to read at the end of this. I mean, heaven actually comes back down to earth. It's not like, oh, we go away. We never have to deal with this again. Heaven actually comes to earth. But when you, when you set your sights on that, your faith will begin to become a tangible expression of an intangible reality. And so when you wrote this down and, and that, that, that struggle became tangible, I, I just want you to look at that. I've been looking at it in my own life and some of my own struggles in my faith and feeling deflated in my faith. I was so glad that Zach was teaching the last two weeks because I wanted nothing to do with it, to be honest. Does that freak you out? Ever had a pastor say I didn't want anything to do with it last two weeks? <clears throat> it's true. Don't act like I'm different. Don't do that. I, don't, I just didn't, pfft, just, ugh, deflated. so glad I just I was over it but as you look at that that struggle I want you to challenge yourself on as you and I don't know what it is for everyone I don't want to I don't need to to be honest I want you to look down I want you to look at it right now in your own writing in your phone wherever you wrote it down and I want you to think about this How are you going to live? How are you going to navigate the waters of that struggle in a way that others will see that you clearly have an eternal perspective? That that struggle in your life right now, which is absolutely 100% real. I love what Zach said like a week or two weeks ago. Like we, we love to just be like, it's not that bad. Like no, stuff sucks sometimes. It gets awful sometimes. It gets absolutely terrible at times. It gets devastating at times. Even if you're in a first world country, even if you're in SoCal, in college, right? 
Maybe you're not under the threat of martyrdom, but stuff is still terrible. We have crazy off-the-chart stress levels in this country. Not because everything's tough, because it's really easy, to be honest. We've got our own issues. But when you look at that issue, when you look at that, that issue that, that is really pressing your faith, I want you to remember that you have a destination beyond this reality. And, and he's going to take a look at some people that understood things beyond their time. Promises that they would not even see fulfilled in their lifetime. And they are listed in the New Testament because they saw beyond this reality into a new reality and they acted now, they acted on earth differently. Why? Differently from the other people around them. Why? Because they had a different reality ahead of them. They had a different eternal perspective. So I don't know where you are, what that issue is for you, but I want you to know that, that God can't wait to walk through it with you. He cannot wait. The Holy Spirit calls himself a comforter. That he is a comforter. That he wants to indwell in you, walk with you as you navigate the waters of that issue and all the others, but we're just talking about one maybe. The God of the universe that knows everything that created the concept of time, that created the concept of knowledge, that when they asked who he was, he said, I am. And we say, you are what? I am. I don't think that makes sense. I know. There's nothing more that he needs to be. He just is that God of the universe. Says, I want to come down to you with that issue and walk with you in a fresh new perspective of eternity now. And so he says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. This doesn't mean that it contradicts reason, right? It means that it goes beyond reason. Reason has its limitations and it has its end. Faith goes beyond. So, Faith and reason are parallel until reason stops, until you've reached the end of it. Then faith goes even further. And it's the evidence now of things not seen. And the author is writing here to Jewish Christians. Okay, as Zach and I have told you, this is more like a sermon, maybe than a letter, than an epistle, though it was written down. It's more like maybe uncovering our notes from a sermon that we were going to give to people, not necessarily a letter that we were shipping off to a church to be read, as was the case with a lot of letters in the New Testament. And so the pastor here, whoever the author was, we're not sure. He's navigating different pockets of Jews, some that weren't converted, some that were, some that were converted but struggling, some that were falling back, that wanted to go back into Judaism and they wanted Christianity light and they wanted nothing distinct and they want to go back to common ground. And so he's preaching to these different pockets and this is very specifically, you can tell, this is very specifically toward the Jews. 
that wanted to back off from a distinct Christianity. And what he's going to do is he's going to reach all the way back to their history and show how this is the fulfillment. He's going to show them these great examples because they're waning in their faith. Anyone else waning in their faith? You don't have to nod and admit, but I am. I already did it. It's on video for crying out loud. Right? Like just like go on Facebook and tell me that people are not in a faith crisis right now. Uh, and I'm not, here's the thing. I'm not going to, I'm not going to like hit on either side, right? I, I'm going to like encourage both sides on this because this happens every four years, by the way, every four years, it's, this is the end of America. This has just sort of been our thing for the last couple decades. I, I was in, you know, I started voting back in, man, I don't know, 99 was there in, I was 18 and 99 and, and Bush and, and then the Kerry Bush and then the Obama, I forget even who, and then uh, Romney and then McCain and this. And every election, it's the end. It's the end because we've placed way too much faith in that, to be honest. doesn't mean we don't work for it. doesn't mean we don't involve ourselves. It doesn't mean it's good to be um, completely understanding of political positions and where you stand, where the Bible stands on issues, where the Bible doesn't stand on issues. But this sort of faith crisis and, and, I'll, and I'll say it, like, like dem- my Democrat friends right now are just melting. And the Republicans are like, yeah, they are. It's crazy. Yeah, okay, Republicans, four years ago, eight years ago, you were melting. I was there. Absolutely melting. Like, this is it. This is the end. Obama is the end of America. I'm like, how did that? It, here we are still. Amazing. <clears throat> In this, and let's stick with this one, right? If it was going to be Hillary, what were they saying? It's the end of America. And then Democrats now, that it is Trump, which very few people saw coming, to be honest. Now it's, this is it. This is the end of it. It's over. It's, they're just, they're lost. They've got no faith beyond this reality. It doesn't mean that we're, we acquiesce. It doesn't mean that we're complacent. It doesn't mean that we're apathetic. I vote. Every single election I vote. I, I love voting. I love that. Are you kidding me? I was in a helicopter above Iraq when they had the purple thumbs. I was part of an aerial quick reaction force securing their right to vote. I'm all for voting. But I'm not for putting your vote or for putting your faith solely in the outcome of an election. And people are melting down. Like it's over, it's lost. And, and subsequently, if you think all of a sudden everything is won now, you need a course correct. Gospel didn't change one bit. The gospel didn't change one bit. doesn't mean we don't have a calling on our life that we're to restore politics, to be involved, and to, to push in to society, to restore, to redeem the time that we have. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 100%. But if you were devastated or elated with the results, you have an idolatry problem. If you were devastated or absolutely elated with the results, you have an idolatry problem. If you post more about politics than you do about anything else, you have an idolatry problem. I struggle with this. Look, I'm a business guy. Love business. Post a lot on business. Some of you are like, I'm, I know your Instagram. You have an idolatry problem, right? You like t-shirts way too much, right? You, you talk about your business all the time and your kids. And that's, look, I, I've long said, if you want to identify the, the idols in your life, simply ask yourself, what do I get more excited or upset about than Jesus? You wake up in the morning, what are you more excited about than Jesus? Those are your idols. It's everything. It's food, it's exercise, it's politics, it's entertainment, it's movies, it's business, it's social 
networking, it's fashion, it's shopping, it's eating, it's drinking, it's dr- whatever you get more excited about than Jesus. That's an idolatry issue. And people are just melting down on Facebook. It's crazy, like we did four years ago, like we did eight years ago. Like the foundations have been shook, and Christians too. And Christians came out in droves this time. That's good. It's good, by the way. It's good. But it doesn't really show an eternal perspective, to be honest. This God of calm and order doesn't really, I don't think he's being reflected by rabid, rabid Christians on Facebook, like going after people now. Like, we won. You didn't win, Jack. And, you know, like whoever you voted for in California, it's like, look, the state's going to go the same way every time anyways. Right? But that, that your, your life now would reflect a perspective that goes beyond this life now. That it would be the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And he says this, he says, For by it the elders or obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the little so that the, the things, sorry, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Part of me wanted to deep, to go into the scientific evidence for the beginning of the world. It fascinates me. It's a study I've done. If you've got questions about that, let me know. I'm not going to do it tonight. Part of me wanted to go into that because if you study some of the core arguments of how the earth came into existence, it it, it, by reason, it points to a creator, not the opposite. If you struggle with that, let me know. I've got a couple things. I would love to just email them to you. Then you can write me back and be like, that was not convincing at all. Totally cool. It's totally fine. I wanted to think about doing it. But here's the idea. Regardless of what the evidence suggests, no one was there when it happened. Can we all agree on that? Okay, we can, four people can agree on that. Terrific. Work on the rest of you guys later. All right, and so regardless of what you believe the evidence concludes with, whether that's complete randomness, whether that's order, whether it's God, whether it's a big bang that God created, a big bang that God had nothing to do with. None of us were there for that. So it has to then be, because even the evidence I can show you will not replace faith because no one was there, right? So that's why the author has to go there because he knows that's a great equalizer. No one was there for that. To assume, to have a faith that God created all things is the the definition of faith because no one was there. Does that make sense? So he goes back to the beginning of time. When all things were created, there was just God and God put it together. And again, I would love to go through some of the really cool evidence that from dudes way smart. I was a comm major. Okay, half the stuff they're talking about, I don't know, but it's just, it's really awesome. And I know that they're really smart at what they do. Okay, Uh, more comm majors. Am I begging on comm majors? You're the smartest people. You're like, I don't want to have homework in college. I'll do be a comm major. (laughs) And then people are like, oh, no, no, my comm department's really hard. It's not that hard. Stop it. You took public speaking. It's like, stop it. Okay. I did too. I know. I just wanted to surf and play in a band in college. So. <laughs> but he says, it's by faith that we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. That's, that's, if you can believe that, it's like it's been said, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you don't believe that, you're going to struggle with the rest of the Bible. You do. But if you can believe that, it's just, it's a core evidence of faith because no one was there. Simply that God would create all things from nothing. All things from nothing. 
And he's talking about these elders and he's going to go into this hall of faith and you need to know that all of these people had different circumstances and they had different personalities and they had different struggles and they had different outcomes. The idea that we mold into this ideal Christian prototype is absurd. Please stop. Please stop. There are uniform things that wrap our faith, but not uniform things that wrap our circumstances and our personalities and our struggles and our outcomes. Does that make sense? There are principles of our faith that are the substance of things not seen that are true regardless of who, when, where you exist. But do not confuse that with in order to be a good, quote, Christian, I begin to look like them. Here's your sole standard. When you become, quote, a better Christian, which those two words should never be next to each other, it's simply because you look more like Jesus. And Jesus was awesome at being a lot of things at once. I don't know if you know that. He was a rabbi and he went to parties. I don't know if you know that. He had a Jewish diet. At times, right? He grew up a good Jewish boy. And then he said, you can eat all things because I've made you clean. He drank alcohol. Some of you don't like that. Some of you have parents told you that doesn't exist. Matthew eleven nineteen. look it up. He drank alcohol. Did he get drunk? Nope. Did he do it underage? Nope. Jesus was amazing at being a lot of things at once. But don't, assume that Christianity means uniformity in that sense. You're all coming from different places. Who here has lived outside of California? Who here has lived outside of, some people are like way excited. I'm like that too. I'm like, <laughs> like I, I get so excited. I don't know why we do that. Like we get so proud. Like we're, we're not moving anywhere. Like why don't you move back? Because there's nowhere else I'd want to live. But when you're like, are you from somewhere else? I am, I am, I am, I am. Right? But as soon as you tell us to leave, we're like, <laughs> you know. But how many of you lived outside the country? Anyone lived outside the country? A little bit. It, it's that, it's a fa- look, I, 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 tell, I tell people off the, it's not like Bible. I tell, I tell young adults, like, you should, you should do a dramatic move at some point in your life. I believe it. I've done a couple. I've lived overseas once with my family for a little bit. And I've moved across the country twice and then moved back for college and stayed out here. It, you learn a lot, not only about yourself, but you learn about how different people are in different circumstances. I mean, look at us. We, we, California is like three different states. It really is. And they're trying to get it split up into like 14 or something crazy right now. Right? Have you ever driven north? You get north of Santa Barbara, you're like, who are these hicks? You're like, these guys have guns and trucks and stuff. This is weird. Right? And then you get up into the bay and it's like, it's totally, it's like being in Martian territory. It's like crazy. It's like, clearly in another country. Is this Cuba? I'm not sure. They have a Castro district. I'm not sure. Right? But like we have Southern California and even San Diego's like, we're not even like LA. This is crazy. You're not SoCal. We're SoCal. Like, well, I don't know. I think you're kind of like Northern Mexico. I'm not sure. Like, <laughs> like you can't go far without being very, in, in, in the variable of humanity, you can't go very far without seeing how diverse, how crazy it is. And you can't move very far without feeling like you're out of place. And you have to recalibrate and you have to reformulate some of your connections because things change. So 
as, as we dive into some of these, again, these are examples of people with great faith. My point was simply this. That went on way longer than I thought it would. But you guys were laughing, so I kind of rode the train for a little bit. <laughs> Just remember that these people had different circumstances, different struggles, different degrees of faith, different personalities. This is not trying to say you need to be like Abraham. This is trying to say this is how Abraham was more like Jesus. This is how you are to be guided and stewarded toward a life that looks more like Jesus. Our lives can look entirely different and be serving the same God. Our lives can look radically different and both be indwelled with the same Holy Spirit. I can be super nerded out on business and you can just want to do theater for the rest of your life. And we can be serving the exact same God, glorifying the exact same name of Jesus. Does that make sense? So we're going to dive into a couple. We're not going to go through the whole chapter, as I said, of the Hall of Faith. But it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so things which are seen were not made of things that are visible. And this is what's generally known as the Hall of Faith. Again, encouraging Jewish Christian converts that were possibly trying to slip back out of a distinctive Christianity. And he uses these as good examples. Look, and that happens. Like you study military. If you go into the military like I did, half of boot camp is sitting through like history classes of the military. Like the epic things that like old dudes did, right? To embolden your action now. That's what he's doing. You do the same thing and it's like no one studies like the presidents of like, you know, the 70s. And it's like you go back to like founding father history, right? Like you're like the, the amazing stuff that they overcame, the amazing action that they took at a critical point in the framing of the whole country. Like that's what he's doing. He's do, laying out this convincing argument. He's going back to the founders of even the Jewish faith and he's gonna show them how it was all about faith. Because keep in mind, people were accredited their righteousness before the law even existed. Abram said, it said, the Bible says in Genesis 15, I think, that Abram believed God and it was counted as righteousness. He was saved. Why? Because he believed. The, the law didn't even come into existence yet. It was years and years and years later that the law even began. So by definition, you can't be saved by the law or else Abram could have not been declared righteous. Does that make sense? People were being saved before the law came into place. This has always been about faith, not adherence to the law, though that comes when you have a true perspective of faith. You want to. You want to adhere to it. You want to look more like Jesus because you realize what he's done and where he's taking you and where he's guiding you. And so keep in mind just those things. He's going to go back to the beginning of humanity. To be honest, there was Adam and Eve and they conceived and they had sons. And verse four says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained witness that he was righteous God testifying of his gifts and through it being dead he being dead still speaks so Cain and Abel were brothers they were the sons of Adam and Eve first humans ever created this goes all the way back into time so he does the beginning of creation then he goes to the kids of the first parents Cain older brother Abel, younger brother. Cain was a farmer. Okay, it says, that, um, it says that he brought an offering. He was a tiller of the ground, a farmer. And he brought an offering of, it says, fruit of the ground. It's vegetables. And no, this is not a knock on vegetarians, though I wanted to. No, I'm just kidding. So Cain, my sister's a veggie. Okay, relax. Cain 
brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, vegetables essentially. And it says that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. He was a shepherd. He tended sheep. This is not veggies versus meat, though that's an easy and quite fun joke. But it's, it's not, it's not a, God's like, no veggies, please, just the meat. But Cain brought veggies. Abel brought some beef, or he, he brought some mutton, some lamb. And it's interesting because if you read through it, if you actually read through it in Genesis, this, we, didn't, we didn't know that this is what God saw. We, it just says they both brought an offering, and it says this. It says the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but did not respect Cain and his offering. So what did Cain do? Kill little brother. We've all wanted to. Hopefully none of you actually have. Okay? Little brother gets a little accolade. What do you do? You've got to beat him down a little bit. Okay? My poor little brother's off St. Louis. He's a doctor now. He, guess who's laughing now? Great. <laughs> got to be, and, and Cain could not have it that his, his little brother's sacrifice was accepted and pleasing to God and his was not. So he murdered him. But it's interesting that if you read the original account, it doesn't even declare why. It doesn't. See, th- this is the thing about faith. We know it now out of Hebrews. We have the full revelation of the Bible. They didn't at the time. Even when Jesus came, he taught out of the Old Testament. Didn't have the New Testament. You need to know this. That's a perfect example that the, the, the definitive factor of those two sacrifices was God peering into the heart of those two boys and knowing that one was based on faith and one was not. Same action. They both brought offerings. You can come to church. You can, you can do your service. You can, you can help feed the poor. You can work at a nonprofit. You can, you can talk about Jesus. You can declare, declare him to be Lord. But you need to know that God looks right into the very center of your soul and knows that which is based on faith and that which is not. By all accounts, both bring an offering. But God looked in and saw that one of them trusted. One of them trusted him with their offering. It wasn't religiosity. It wasn't morality. It wasn't all I tithe because Pastor Mark said I should probably tithe. Tithing's good. But as you've heard us say, if you're just doing it because you think you have to, please stop. Please stop. Never out of guilt or compulsion, the Bible says. Because God looks in and he knows whether it's tithing, whether it's good works, whether it's ministry, whether it's evangelism, whatever it is, He looks right in and he knows if you trust him with that. And that's what it's always been about. You can't hide from him. You can't, I can't, I try. I bury myself in activities. Bury myself in life, in marriage, in kids, in family, in coaching, in fitness, in whatever I've got, I'll bury myself in it. And I can't hide from him. He knows when I'm just getting up here to teach because I think I have to. He knows the very depths of your intent. And it pleases him when it's based on faith. He was pleased with Abel. He was pleased with his offering. Why? Because Abel brought it to him knowing, trusting that God would make good on his promises. And keep in mind, the whole offering, the whole sacrificial system was, was always set up saying that this is going to be evidence of a coming Messiah. And so even in that, like how was Abel saved? Why? Because even though he didn't know the name of Jesus, he had a trust that God would send that Messiah. Who did that Messiah end up being? Jesus, his faith in Jesus saved him. 
Though he didn't know his name would be Jesus, they called him the Son of Man. How were people saved in the Old Testament? They had a faith in Jesus. It doesn't say that. Jesus wasn't there. They had a faith that the Son of Man would come, that the Messiah would be there. They didn't know his name yet, true, but their faith was in Jesus. And God knew, and he was pleased. And so by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. What made it better? Because it was meat versus veggies? No. I'm a nutrition coach. You should always pair the two, by the way. Okay? I'm not saying half the plate was unpalatable. I'm saying that one was based on faith. And so, do you serve based on faith or do you serve out of compulsion? Do you tithe based on faith or on faith or do you tithe based on a compulsion or do you not tithe at all? That's a fun one for me actually. Or do you not tithe at all? You want to you want to I didn't even think about this not in my notes. You want you want oh this is ugh. I want to love on you with this, but you want evidence that you don't trust God? He says, tithe, and I'll do more with that than you could ever do with the 100%. And how many college kids don't tithe? Oh, I, tr- I trust God, do you? I'm not religious. I don't do the 10%. 10% was the law. Grace is greater than the law. Try 15. I don't have that much money. He didn't ask you how much you had, nor the woman that tithed in front of him. He said her little offering was more than all the rich people given as much as they could. I'm going to challenge you on that. I didn't plan on it. I got the goosebumps. Some of you are going to be a little tripped out, worried. And I tell me, I have to give my money. I'm not telling you you have to give money. God doesn't need your money. I'm telling you that's evidence that you don't trust God. I've gone through times where I haven't tithed. College wasn't one of them for me. I was tithing back to my church in Minnesota, though I wasn't even attending a church out here. And I can tell you after college, when I really got squeezed on finances, it was because I had stopped. I had stopped and I got squeezed. Now, does God always financially bring it back tenfold? No. A lot of times it's an increase in faith. It's an increase in other blessing. It's an increase in ministry. I'm not saying if you give God X, he'll give you Y in terms of dollars. But what I am saying is that it's a clear call on tithing. And I got a a hard time hearing I trust God when the evidence would point that you don't. If, if, you're, if, you're, if that hits you over the head, I didn't plan on it. Come talk to me afterwards. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to know that he will allow you to do more with that 90% than you can possibly do right now with 100%. I've gone through it. I've kept 100% and had no money. I've done it. And then I've tithed when it absolutely made no sense and things worked. I've done it. You talk to people that are deeper in their faith, most people have gone through that at some point. Things are getting tough, let's not tithe for a couple months, and it squeezes like crazy. Or the people say things are getting tough, no, we must continue, and it continues to be taken care of. God says he will meet all your needs, not all your desires, but all your needs in the riches of Christ. It's not always monetarily, but you need to know that God is a good God who will take care of his kids. Doesn't mean he might not let someone live in a huge house that they haven't stewarded properly but they will be taken care of. Their needs will be taken care of in the riches of Christ. Again, that was a bit of a deviation. I didn't plan on it. You can blame it on the Holy Spirit. And um, we'll move on from there. How about that? Okay, so it's not the offering. It's the faith. Make, amen? Make sense? Some of you are like, are you done? Because I'm leaving. Never coming back. <laughs> it's about the faith. The Lord respected Abel and his offering and did not respect Cain. One was based on faith. One was based out of obligation. 
God sees the difference, and that difference is faith. And it says, by faith, verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death, quote, and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Everyone want to know what his testimony was? We have no idea. Enoch is one of those mystery men in the Bible. Just comes out of nowhere. Jude references him as a prophet. But to be honest, a lot of the other stuff that deals with some of his prophecy is like super shaky. But we do know that he was a man of faith. So like, what, what, what did Enoch do? No clue. Does that disappoint you? <laughs> right? Like, just don't know. He's one of the mystery men in the Old Testament. Very little is known about him. Very little is written. We're told that Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. So God just took him. Jude identifies him as a prophet in Jude 14, 15. But here's what we do know. We do know that Enoch was a man of great faith. And the Bible tells us that. And so it's enough for me. Enough for you? It has to be. I don't have any more on him. So here it goes. Verse six. It says, but without faith, this is big. If you're going to underline another word, let it be this one. It says, but without faith, it is, underline impossible. I I would submit to you that most Christians assume it is difficult to please God without faith. That is not true. It is impossible. It is not just a hard task. It is an impossible task. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how many homeless people you help. It doesn't matter how many friends you bring to church. It doesn't matter how many times you serve in the children's ministry. It doesn't mean, it doesn't matter how many times you've brought food. It doesn't matter how many times you've witnessed. How many times, how many times, how many times it's impossible without faith. You want the key? That's it. You want the key? And we don't, we don't ask what pleases God, right? We, we don't often. Certainly not often enough. Are we not fascinated with what displeases God? There is not a single debate taking place on Facebook right now about the best way to please God. It is constantly a machine gun war about everyone else displeasing God. And that's the mentality that we have. I bet you any one of us could list 20 ways that people can displease God. Just list 20 sins. But how much, how many of us before this can write out a list of five things that please God? But you need to know, even if that list is 50 strong, of good things, of biblical things, Christian things, of loving things, God looks right into the heart. He says, if it's not faith-based, it's impossible to be pleased. Jesus came and he was baptized as he started his public ministry. This is the heaven opened up. Holy Spirit descended upon him. I believe that's exactly when the new covenant was instituted. Every moment from there, I believe, was, was the new covenant taking place as Jesus was baptized. The sign of the new covenant is now baptism. The Holy Spirit descended upon him, showing you that in order to be a Christian, the Holy Spirit must be indwelled with you. That's the definition of a Christian. It's not that you believe Jesus is God. Jesus says, not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, we'll enter the kingdom of heaven. It's that you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. The Father looks down and the Father says, look at this, this is my Son in him. I am pleased. In him, I am pleased. 
Faith connects you to Jesus, and in Jesus, the Father is pleased. That's it. It's the whole equation. When your faith is in what Jesus has done, the Father smiles. You need to know it's about Jesus, not you. It's one of the most loving things I can tell you. It's one of the most glorious things I can tell you. It's not about you. Some of you are excited about that. Some of you are a little bummed. Wait a minute. It's not? Then why have I been doing stuff? It's not. It's not about you. The Bible's not about you. The Bible's not about me. It has ramifications for me. It has, it has guidance for me and wisdom for me, but it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And when our faith puts us in Jesus, he says, the Father says, in him, I am well pleased. That's why the Bible over and over in the New Testament, hundreds of times, it says, you're in Christ. The term Christian is used twice. It says you are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Something you're in, it's not a title you carry. And when you're in him, the Father is pleased. And it's by faith that you extend, that you put in Jesus that makes the Father pleased. And that's the, that's the best part, is that it's been perfect. It's been perfected. Life was perfect. Jesus lived a perfect life. You don't have to. Why? Because Jesus did. But you don't go the other way. Do I continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says. Not at all. But it's that as you stumble in that faith walk, you're not demoralized. You're not stricken. You're not burdened when you fall. Why? Because it's not your life being judged anymore. It's Jesus' life, and the Father says it's good. So if you're in him, you pursue him, you're in. It's not knowing that heaven's there, it's knowing that you're going. And every day you try through sanctification, by the grace of God, you look more like Jesus every day, but you need to know that God isn't angry when you fail anymore. He's not a disappointed dad. He's a loving father. And when you're in Jesus, when you're passionately pursuing Jesus in all that you do, when you show up to church, why? Because you have faith in what Jesus has done, the Father is pleased. When you show up here because you think you have to, because you had a bad week and this is somehow going to make you better, the Father's not pleased. He's tired of it. I'm tired of it. He doesn't want religiosity or morality. Or moralism, I should say. Jesus certainly didn't. He fought against it when he was here. It's always been about faith. It's always been about faith. It says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. I love that. People are like, he is what? Right? Don't you do that? You read that? You're like, he, they must believe that he is. Why is there a comma? He is what? Like, what, what is he? Just that he is. I don't get it. I need more. No, you don't. Like we sing that song, like the great I am. He, he is what? Nope. <laughs> Do you believe that he is? That God is who he says he is? That Jesus is who he says he is? And yes, Jesus did say he was God. There's a whole stream of argument out there, especially on college kids. Jesus never said, I am God. He did plenty of times. I'll send you a list. Plenty of times. But Christians aren't educated and we don't, we don't study like we should to show ourselves approved and so we can't combat it. There's no quote in the Bible where Jesus says, I am God. It's true. It's true. But I've got about 20 that show you where he says he is. You must believe that he is, that God is who he says he is. 
that he is the creator of all things. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I'm willing to bet most of you don't struggle with the first, but a lot of us, myself included, struggle with the second. God is who he says he is. Got it. Move on. And that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I don't know where we are on that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm out of touch. Do we believe that God will reward? Do you believe? Do you pursue him believing that he will reveal things you can't imagine about himself to you if you diligently seek him. Do you believe that? Because I'm telling you, that's where your, your week will look radically different, not because it has to, because now you want it to. Because you want to know more now. I, I've used this analogy in the past. How diligently do we seek people of the opposite sex when we're romantically attracted to them? How diligent are we? Are you, are you even a quarter that diligent in your faith? right? Half? How much more diligently? It's conviction on me too. I pulled all all the stops when I met Carissa. Are you kidding me? Our first date was Catalina Island. Boom, gentlemen. Okay. (laughs) I was like, I'm marrying this girl. Get her on an island where she can't run. Okay. (laughs) And then tell her that. (laughs) Right. First date, gonna marry you. Where are you gonna run? (laughs) Not a big island and I'm faster than you. (laughs) How, how diligent, there's no coming back. You're like, you broke the whole sermon right in half right there. How diligent, but, but then, but then I, no joke, then I feel weird. Zach's like, go out on a mountain with God and spend some time. I'm like, that's, that's just weird though. But would I have done that with Carissa? You better believe it. Have I done it? Absolutely. And then Zach challenges me, like, go up on a mountain and go hang out with Jesus for a while. I'm like, come on, dude, I got stuff to do. Like, they should, I'm busy, Right? But think about how passionately do we pursue relationships and a knowledge of people, but not the creator. That we diligently pursue. But, but, but again, in faith, not because, oh, I've got to figure out more stuff about Jesus. Mark said so. It's that you now know that he will reveal things to you beyond your wild imagination, beyond your wildest imagination. And it says that he is a rewarder. We must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I challenge you this week because I'm going to challenge myself. I think this was a perfect passage for me to come out of my slump. It's a perfect passage for me to be knocked back into that passionate pursuit that I used to be so on fire about. And it's waned. I'm not going to joke. I'm not going to mess around. It's waned. I was up there joking with Dave before. I sounded with him, hey, you want to teach tonight? <laughs> I just, I've been off it. I'm not passionately pursuing. I'm not diligently seeking him because I probably think I'm probably such an egomaniac. I'm like, I know, I, I know it all, so I'm fine. Like, there's nothing more to discover, right? That's how pathetic I am. And you guys are way better than me. None of you think that, right? You guys, know, you know, you got to figure it out. But I'd, I would challenge us all this week to not just believe that he is, but that he is the rewarder of those who diligently Seek him. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. By faith Noah, everyone everyone knows Noah, knows the ark, knows the flood. Man preached forever. No one cared. Built a boat. 
took forever, grabbed some animals, disgusting, so much poop, got them onto a boat. But here's the thing. He was warned about things that he hadn't seen that had never happened before. And God said would never happen again. He was warned, but what did he do? Does it say he believed? It says he moved. He did believe it. You know how he knew? He moved. What did he do? Built a freaking ark. He built an ark. Go back to the first, what is the first verse? It's the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Had he seen the flood? No, what happened? His actions changed. Why? Because he trusted God. God said, I'm the creator of the universe. Yeah? Yeah. I'm going to flood this whole dang thing. Okay. What should I do? Build a boat. Got it. Right? Some of us are like, we, we don't understand. We're like, well, he hasn't said that to me. I know. He's not going to flood it again. But he has called you what? To talk to your friends about Jesus, hasn't he? I'm the creator of the universe. Yeah? Yeah. Tell your friends about me. Uh, I'll bring him to, I'll bring him to church. Or you could have Mark tell him about it. Or Zach. I'll text Zach, see what he's. I could go on and on and on with examples. They might not be as catastrophic as Noah and the ark, but this is one of the examples. He said he's got a call on your, like, by the way, thank goodness. People are like, oh, it's just not as dramatic. I don't want it to be that dramatic. I don't want to build a boat. I'm terrible. I told you, I can't do this. I'm going to hang out with James if he floods this place again, Okay. But God has a call on your life. Move. Some of you, that's literal. Like some of you maybe need to move. Some of you need to switch jobs. Some of you need to maybe switch majors. Some of you need to switch your attitude. Some of you need to drop your ego. God's got a, a, it's like he wrote 66 books on calls on our life. And I think that's one of the reasons we don't want to study our Bible because then we have to be face-to-face with him. But Noah moved. How'd you know he was a man of faith? Because he moved. He served. He trusted God, who God was, who he said he was. So when God put a call on his life, he moved and he built an ark. So he says, he moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of the household by which he condemned the world. And by the way, it's not that he was preaching condemningly. It's that his very actions were the sign that he was saved and those who didn't respond to his actions were condemned. You'll see those that are condemned because they will be unaffected by the gospel. They will be unaffected by the works of the church. They will be unaffected by the restorative agent that the church can be in the community today. They will be unaffected by it. And it's not that we tell them they're condemned. It's that you see that they are. And so it's not that he was preaching condemningly. It's that his actions showed who was saved and who was not. And by the way, this is one of the things that James, the book of James, says over and over. Just one example is chapter 122. It says, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. One of the things that I have to do as a pastor is I have to warn you about deception. And my warning tonight is if you hear the preaching of God's word, and you simply hear it, you're being deceived. You are being deceived. That you would not then move forward in faith means you are deceiving yourself into believing that simply understanding it saves you. 
And just as Cain understood what he was supposed to do and he did it, it was by faith that Abel brought the worthy sacrifice. And so it says, and he became the heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. And it says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out. I'm going to rip through this. We've got to move. He says, by faith, Abraham obeyed. It's almost as if like the Bible says, like if you're in faith, you will obey. Not because you have to, to be saved, but you do it because you are saved. By faith, Abraham obeyed. And by the way, I told you his name was originally Abram and he was accounted as righteousness by faith before the law even existed. So it's not about obeying that saved him. But by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Some of you are there now. If God's placed a call on your life, and all your friends and all your family say you're crazy because you're pursuing X major, you want to go work for this company, and if between you and God it's what he's called you to do, you're good. Let me encourage you in that. But if you're just doing something because everyone says you need to and you feel called this way, but that seems radical and crazy and you're just going to do this, you need to know you're not good. By faith, God calls individuals into paths that he would have for them. And Abraham went out to a place he didn't know about, but he went, why? Because he trusted who God was. That God would fulfill his promises. You're going into theater, you're going into business, you're going into music, you're going into the arts, you're going into calm, you're going into entertainment, you're going into fitness, you're going into any of this. Between you and God, you may not know what it looks like, but if he's calling you there, he's going to meet you there and take care of you there. Know that. It says, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt. And the word dwelt in the Greek means resident alien. It means that it's one who lives somewhere but does not have a permanent status there. Christians, this is your worldview. Talk a lot about worldview, and it generally boils down to some moralistic deism. But what I'm telling you is that we are resident aliens Consider it your first apartment. You're going to get a better house. Don't destroy the apartment. Fix the holes in the wall. Make some upgrades. Clean the carpet. Don't be an idiot. Take care of it. But no, but no, that's not your final dwelling place. Restore, redeem the time. We're called to be active, engaged included in our community, being restorative efforts, being salt and light. We preserve things in culture. We shed light on things in culture to be certain. But you need to know, you need to know that you are a resident alien. You are first and foremost a citizen of heaven. This is your second citizenship. Congrats, you're all dual citizens. This is your, at best, second citizenship. See why we started the way we did when you have that perspective of where you're going? Your second citizenship should be evidence that you have a greater citizenship. That's why you take care of things. That's why we're called to steward families and communities and church now here so that they can see what citizenship in heaven looks like now. I'm not going to tell you to act better. I'm going to tell you to focus on that knowing that God will cause you to want to display that now. And so he says, 
that he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. This is a foreign country, Christian. We love it. We work to restore it. But you need to know all of us are in a foreign country. And this, this, this sings in other countries for Christians. This is a melody in China. For us, we're like, I don't know how I feel about that. I think that's unpatriotic. This is my country. I've got a flag at home to prove it. Right? So do I. I love it. Fought for this country. Been shot at for this country. Almost died for this country. So don't play patriotism with me. But I will tell you this. This, that, sings in China. You're a citizen of heaven first, and they weep. They're so happy. They're so happy that that's their final, that's their primary, that's their number one citizenship. That's the fastest rising Christian church, by the way. It's in China. So he says, he dwelt in a land of promises in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him, the same promise. For he waited for the city, which was foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised because she took God at his word. That God is who he says he is, and God will make good on the promises he's made. I've said this a couple weeks ago. We see this as a book of hundreds of laws when it's really first and foremost a book of thousands of promises. And some of you right now are like, I wish I knew them. And Zach and I would say, we wish you read your Bible. How can you know the promises if you're not reading them? I dare you to dive in. I dare you to dive into his promises and not be convicted on your perspective. That he promises so much in the riches of Christ. That he wants so much for you. It's almost like we don't want to read them because then we're like accountable to them. And he says, I've written them down, study them. And Sarah trusted, and no surprise, God came through, but it was by faith. Verse 12, therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born as many of the stars in the sky and multitude, innumerable as the sand which is on the seashore. And here comes the hope. Verse 13 says, these all died in faith. None of them saw the Messiah. Anyone here seen Jesus in person? Anyone? I'd really like to talk to you if you have. We look at them as having this crazy different experience in us. They never got to meet Jesus face to face. And by the way, when people got to meet Jesus face to face, they still rejected him. So don't act like that would have been the ceiling thing. It says they all died in faith, not having received the promises. It's not that they didn't receive the promise. It's that they didn't receive the actual promise of seeing the Messiah. Or else that line would contradict the whole part of this first part of this chapter says, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. You should, but you should always feel a little, I'm, I'm learning this later in life, 35 now, you should always feel a little uncomfortable here. That's okay. If, if you are completely comfortable here in America, in California, SoCal, with your with everything, with the political system, the laws, the job, if you're completely comfortable, you've probably lost perspective. You've set a new standard, which is this, rather than what's to come. When you study the character and the nature of God, you will be at war with the status quo on earth. It says, all these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them as afar off. And we have this too, I want to show you. Assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. They seek a homeland. 
And that's more of our perspective. I want to hit that again because that's, honestly, that's our world, that's our world view. It's not that we don't work to restore things now, but we do that because we've seen what's to come. I can't wait for sex trafficking to be done. I can't wait for abuse to be over. I can't wait for divorce to end. I can't wait for neglect and abandonment of children and abortion. I can't, I can't wait for that stuff to be done. Why? Because I know at some point it will be. And I work now to reflect that, but I know it's not going to be fulfilled here. I can't do it. No nonprofit can do it. We should work, but our perspective is that Jesus will finish it. That by no means we, we, by no means am I saying we stop working for restoration now. We do that because we've had a glimpse of heaven. Because we know what it ought to be and therefore we work for it now. But we seek a homeland. And truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It says, now they desire better. That's what, I want. That's what I want for all of us tonight, is that your desire is for better. You work for that now to reflect the coming kingdom, but that you actually desire better, that you don't think this is it. So cows the life. If I get this amount, paid every year with this house, with this car, then I'm it, then that's good, that is better. It's not. It's still not heaven. It's still not fellowship with Jesus. We should seek better. We should work for it now, that kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But we know that better is coming because of the work of Jesus. And it says, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. I'm gonna have Dane come up and I'm going to flip over to Revelation 21 real fast. I've done this before. I'm going to do it again. Some of you don't know what heaven looks like. God has already told us. It's a little hard to imagine. I'm going to read fast. I want you to just, to be honest, let's be cheesy. Close eyes. Super cheesy. Close your eyes. I want you to hear how God explains this better city that he's built for us that's going to come to earth. It says, and now, this is John in Revelation 21, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Bummer, surfers. Then I, John, saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He's not ashamed. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. 
Verse 9 says, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to the great high mountain. Keep your eyes closed. He says, And show me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like the most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and the 12 angels and the gates and the names written on them, which were the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length and its great is as great as its breadth. And he measured it with the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. It's a cube. Heaven is a cube. It's as wide, as tall, and as deep as the East Coast. It says in verse 18, the construction of its walls are like jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation of the wall and the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. And the first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth christophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amorous. It's going to be awesome. And the, twelfth gate, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass, but I saw no temple. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need for a sun or for the moon to shine in it. The glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in the light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor to it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory of the honor of the nations to it, but there shall by no means enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. God, I ask as we close that you would just simply impress upon us that eternal perspective, that this is real, that this is happening, that though it seems far off, your promise of renewing all things, just as it seemed far off for Abraham and Sarah and Enoch and Cain and Abel that a Messiah would come. And though we may die before that promise is fulfilled, we still live in light of it now. We live in a way that reflects an eternity so glorious and so gracious and so loving that people around us can't help but see a life being lived out with a different perspective. God, thank you that the key is faith and not morality. God, thank you that the key is faith and not religiosity. God, thank you that the key is a faith in Jesus who lived a perfect life so we don't have to. That he died on a cross so that we don't have to. Lived a life we should have lived, died the death that we deserved so that we could spend eternity with you in heaven. Jesus, I just pray that you would usher that desire into our heart tonight as we go into a time of worship to a risen king who's on a throne who can hear us sing. We love you and we praise you. And I can't wait to see you again. Amen.